Well, when I was growing up, Tony the Tiger was a celebrity. Uh, he sold Frosted Flakes with his famous slogan, they're great. And I believed Tony. Did you believe Tony? I loved eating Frosted Flakes. Uh, but let's, let's think about Tony and his slogan for a bit. I read a humorous piece from HuffPost titled, Tony the Tiger Doesn't Make Sense. And I'll read it for you with slight edits. I think you'll be amused. Tony the Tiger's catchphrase is, they're great because he thinks that Frosted Flakes are great and he's a tiger and tigers say grr. Grr is the sound of a tiger growling. Growling is a tiger's signal for feeling ticked off or threatened. But Tony sounds pretty jovial and upbeat whenever he's advertising Frosted Flakes. So why is he growling? Is he ticked off? Does he feel threatened by Frosted Flakes competitors? It doesn't appear so. If he likes Frosted Flakes so much, he should be purring. A more realistic slogan would be, they're pretty good. <laughs> Secondly, with Tony growling all the time, it gives the impression that he is first and foremost a tiger and only a breakfast cereal spokesman second. But if this is the case, then his priorities are inconsistent. His first priority seems to be food, which is consistent with that of a tiger but he doesn't seem to be as concerned with eating Frosted Flakes himself as he is with, with uh, getting other people to eat them. If Tony were first and foremost a tiger, then he wouldn't care if anyone else was getting food. Some may argue that this is the sole reason why Tony and not some normal tiger was chosen as the spokesman for Frosted Flakes. However, look at the other breakfast cereal spokesmen that are animals. You don't have to be concerned with satisfying anyone else's taste buds to be a cereal spokesman. Toucan Sam doesn't care if anyone eats Fruit Loops. He just wants a good life for himself and his three nephews. And the Trix Rabbit definitely doesn't care if anybody else eats Trix, even going so far as to steal it from children. And that crazy Cocoa Puffs cuckoo bird, Sonny, is so self-absorbed and whacked out of his mind, he probably doesn't even realize there are other people on the planet. If Tony were like one of these spokesmen, an animal just trying to eat, then everything would make sense. His commercials would feature him just eating Frosted Flakes by himself and exclaiming that they're great. He wouldn't be telling this to anyone in particular. He would just be talking to himself and expressing his emotions aloud. It would be as if a camera just happened to be filming it. We would be watching a tiger eat his favorite food. Hearing an occasional growl would be absolutely believable. But those aren't the commercials. Tony is a tiger happily promoting Frosted Flakes and growling at the same time. It makes no sense. He's also talking, and tigers can't talk, but that's not that big of a deal. All right. So there you have it. Today we begin our expositional series on the gospel according to Matthew. And rest assured, unlike Tony the tiger, who we're not even sure has ever tasted Frosted Flakes, Matthew indeed tasted the goodness of Jesus. Matthew wrote his book because he thought Jesus was a person worth writing about, worth knowing about, worth knowing. For Matthew, Jesus Christ is good news, and he wrote why. The gospel according to Matthew makes the case for why Jesus Christ is good news. Presumably, so that you would get really excited about Jesus and his kingdom, put your complete trust in Jesus for salvation, and live to magnify the glory of Jesus by your life of submission and obedience and relationship with him and 
Who better to make that case than a guy who spent years with Jesus being transformed by Jesus? Matthew naturally connects Jesus back to the Old Testament and God's covenants in order to demonstrate that Jesus is God's promised Messiah and therefore is actually good news for both you and me. I've titled this series, Jesus Christ is Good News, because, folks, he's actually good news. He's actually good news. I want you to know Jesus as good news, in fact, as the best of news, and I want you to know why. By the Spirit, I want you to hear about Jesus and say from the bottom of your heart, he's great, and mean it because you've tasted him. You've tasted him because you've seen through the eyes of faith that he is good, that he is good for you. Before we devour this great book, I think we should know a bit about the author. Who was Matthew? The Bible doesn't say a lot about Matthew. Uh, He's mostly mentioned as one of the 12. Scripture mentions him by name, by the name Matthew five times and by the name Levi another three more times. Uh, We don't know where he was born. His father was Alphaeus. He was Jewish. His name was Levi. And many believe that Jesus renamed him Matthew after his conversion. Matthew was a tax collector uh, employed by the Roman government. He was probably wealthy. He probably was disdained among Jews for several reasons. One, as a Jewish tax collector, he was seen as a Roman sympathizer. Not a good image. Two, Matthew's livelihood came from taxing his own people for Rome's sake. Three, oftentimes tax collectors charge excessive amounts to make themselves richer, Zacchaeus being a good example of that. So it is probable that Matthew was actually a corrupt and greedy man. Four, the religious leaders of Judaism thought it unacceptable to even be around tax collectors. Matthew was a sinful man in need of God's grace, his saving grace. And Jesus chose to extend him, to extend Matthew, not only saving grace, but a call to serve as one of his exclusive 12 disciples. When Jesus graciously chose and called him, Luke 5.28 says about Matthew, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Matthew was a man chosen, redeemed, and transformed by Christ. Matthew was also considered a chosen and appointed apostle whom Jesus sent to preach the gospel. Jesus gave Matthew authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal diseases and afflictions. Matthew was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. And apart from being an evangelist, Matthew is among the most famous and the most successful best-selling published authors of history. Even more importantly, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, Matthew penned the words of God, the words of God. So his gospel book is not only according to Matthew, but according to God. Amazing. We don't know for certain, but legend has it that Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia for the gospel. He gave the ultimate sacrifice, his own life, to publicize what he believed was good news. The words of this book come from a man who believed that Jesus is so precious that the news about him, just the news about him, is worth dying for. Consider that carefully. 
as you study this amazing book. So then, why did Matthew write a book about Jesus? To put it simply, so people would hear the good news of Jesus, so that they would hear So it would get out so that people could read about it. Matthew doesn't explicitly state the purpose of his gospel like John did. John was very clear. But the content of his book makes at least this much clear. Matthew wanted to articulate and disseminate the good news of Jesus so that people would hear and believe. Matthew was written before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, likely between 64 and 70. One source said that Matthew speaks truth about real events in history, and he does so with a spiritual, pastoral, and covenantal agenda. Covenantal agenda. Considering how much Matthew connected Jesus back to the Old Testament and covenants, he no doubt wrote for Jews. Uh, Yet we'll see that he also emphasized the inclusion of the Gentiles in Christ's kingdom. Why did Matthew write a book about Jesus? The Reformation Study Bible deduces this. In addition to showing Jewish readers that God's covenant with Israel has been fulfilled in Jesus, Matthew reminds them that this covenant had always been directed toward blessing for all nations, as the Lord had promised Abraham. We'll see evidence of this along the way as Gentiles uh, play a part in Matthew's story. The Reformation Study Bible continues, central to Matthew's theology is the theme that Jesus is the promised Davidic king who has come to redeem his people and established his kingdom of righteousness. From the opening identification of Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham, to the opening message of repentance in the light of the kingdom's arrival, to the end of the gospel, Matthew argues that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies, institutions, offices, landmark events, and other anticipatory patterns in Israel's history, end of quote. So... Covenant theology is going to help you understand Matthew's intent and Matthew's content. Uh, The the more you know about the Old Testament and covenant theology, the more beautiful the book of Matthew becomes. In fact, let me go further to say the more beautiful Jesus becomes because you'll be better equipped to make the covenantal and the redemptive connections back to the Old Testament. There are unfathomably good things for you in this book if you study them deeply. And so my encouragement to you is as I preach through the the gospel according to Matthew, read it for yourself. Study it for yourself along with where we're going. Know where I'm headed in the following weeks. Study ahead of me so that during this series you can glean as much as possible from this amazing book. Now, a point worth noting is that Matthew did not write a strict chronology. That's an important point. He organized the the material more thematically to emphasize certain truths. So as we move through this transformative book, keep the big picture in mind. Matthew explains why Jesus is good news. Why Jesus is good news. Why Jesus is the Christ that God promised long ago. Why Jesus is the sovereign king of God's everlasting kingdom. And why you and I should put our trust in Jesus alone as our savior and Lord and prophet, priest and king. And why he should be our very, very best friend. 
closest friend. That's where we're headed in the coming years. We're going to be in Matthew for a while. All right, so let's get started. An intriguing beginning to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to explain the gospel to a good friend or a family member, uh, you probably wouldn't start with a long list of complicated names that uh, Mark read for us. Old Testament names. Now, humorously, author John T. Rhodes writes this. Have you ever been in an evangelism training session where you were asked to turn to your neighbor and explain the gospel? If so, did your answer run at all along the lines of, well, there was a guy called Hezron who was the father of Ram, and Ram had a son called Aminadab. Now, when Aminadab grew up, he had a boy and called him Nashon. Now, you won't believe this, but Nashon had a son too. Well, Rhodes continues, I imagine not. But this is really just another way of asking whether you've ever wondered why Matthew begins his gospel with a chapter's worth of genealogy. If you were writing an account of what you considered to be the best news in the world, would you really begin with all those names? Matthew clearly thought so. But then Matthew understood the covenant. Matthew understood the covenant. Folks, if you know a bit about covenant theology, the start of Matthew won't seem so odd to you. The, the names will take you back to God's covenants and promises in the times of types and shadows and magnify for you the faithfulness of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The, the genealogy proves that Jesus is God's promised Davidic king who reigns and rules from the throne in the kingdom of God, which is good news. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Brothers and sisters, verse 1 says a lot about who we put our faith in. It takes us back to the promise of Christ in Genesis 3.15 and the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants. Verse 1, it sets the stage for all of Matthew. It echoes God's covenant of redemption because fulfilled prophecy reveals that God had an eternal plan. It echoes God's covenant of works because if you think about it, a Christ is not needed where the covenant of works is perfectly Obeyed, perfectly kept, perfectly fulfilled. And it echoes God's covenant of grace because deep within verse 1, God is confirming for us that He keeps His promises because He sent His chosen and anointed Christ and King from the line of Abraham and the line of David to rescue His chosen people from their sin, guilt, and death. Now let's say that you struggle with fear or sexual sin or anger or deceit, or anxiety, or gossip, or whatever. You can fill in the blank. Those sins distract you from God, and, and they just sap joy from you. Isn't that your experience with sin? Verse 1 establishes the basis for why you should trust Jesus to deliver you from fear, sexual sin, anger, and so forth. If Matthew can prove that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, which he does, then Jesus is God's promised serpent-slaying seed, son, savior, and sovereign, who alone can rescue you from sin, 
remove your guilt, reconcile you to God, transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into his glorious kingdom of light, and make you a beautiful new creation, empower you to live like your king, and give you the blessings of the kingdom, give them to you now, and give them to you forever. You and I need verse 1 and the following genealogy because then we know for certain that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant of grace and that we have assurance of redemption in union with him. Matthew begins with the Greek word biblos from where we get the word Bible. Biblos means book or document or historical record. Matthew's second word is geneseos, or genesis. The only other places in Scripture where biblos and genesis are used together is the Greek translation of Genesis 2, and uh, 1, verse 1, and Genesis 5, verse 1. Now, that's interesting uh, because those verses say this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Now, isn't it interesting that the phrase Biblos Geneseos introduces the creation and genealogy of Adam, the first human being, and introduces the redemptive new creation achieved by Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus, the second and the greater Adam. Isn't that intriguing? Two beginnings. One man's failure ending in horrific sin and chaos in the universe and another man's success ending in beautiful redemption and the restoration of the universe. Matthew is a a genesis of sorts, a new beginning because Jesus came to rescue, to redeem, and to restore. See how Jesus connects back to the Old Testament? You gotta know the Old Testament. You gotta know it. One note says this Matthew is narrating the record of the new creation launched by the coming, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So from the very beginning, Matthew is taking us to Jesus Christ, God's chosen and anointed Messiah, his Christ, who restores creation with his redemptive work. We shouldn't skip all these names. Anyone else kind of feel like, well, let's just jump over the names. All right, how important could they be? Don't do that. Don't do that because they are part of the identity and the redemptive work of Christ who brings ultimate restoration. Now, the name Jesus means savior. Jesus was a common name, yet for Jesus of Nazareth, it represents his actual identity and redemptive work. Later in chapter 1, verse 21, the angel told Joseph to name the child Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was the embodiment of his own name. Christ is the Greek counterpart to the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ means anointed one, which unquestionably connects back to the Davidic covenant, as does the designation son of David. God promised David a royal offspring, his own divine son, who would reign upon the throne forever. Psalm 18, verse 50 says, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. 
to David and to his offspring forever. Verse 1 confirms that Jesus is the anticipated Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his position. It is his redemptive work. Notice also the designation, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of the gracious Abrahamic covenant. Don't forget Genesis twenty-two eighteen. 18. God promised Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Jesus is God's promised offspring, God's promised son who inherits not just a small territory, but all things and shares all things with every single person that he rescues and saves from their sin, from all the nations of the earth. This is exciting. It is true that all the nations of the earth are blessed in Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. We need the son of Abraham or we are not blessed. Understand what Matthew is getting at. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenants and promises. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is good news. It's good news. The best of news Every gracious covenant promise of God is fulfilled in Christ. That's good news. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 31, is helpful. It asks this, why is he called Christ that is anointed? Why do we refer to him as Christ? And, and it answers, because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Now, the word Christ appears 16 times in Matthew Prophet, priest, and king are particularly noteworthy. They were the prominent leadership roles within redemptive history and specifically Israel, and we must keep our eyes peeled for how Jesus, as the Christ, fulfills each of these leadership roles in Matthew. Prophet, priest, and king. We need to watch for those prominent titles. It tells us a lot about who he is and what he does for us. In Matthew... We should expect to see Jesus teaching us the, the will of God, teaching his people as prophet, interceding and sacrificing himself for his people's redemption as priest. And we should expect to see him governing and defending and preserving his people as king. It is clear from the Old Testament that God promised a final anointed and preeminent prophet, priest, and king. You can read throughout in the, in the Old Testament. And Matthew establishes that Jesus Christ is the one. He is the Christ. Jesus as prophet is good news because through him we know the will of God. Jesus as priest is good news because through him we have an atoning sacrifice for our sins and we have an ongoing intercessor. Jesus as king is good news because 
Through him, we have a ruler who protects us and who provides for us and who defends us and gives us a glorious and everlasting kingdom. So it is right to say that Jesus as the Christ is good news. From verse 2 to verse 16, Matthew gives us a ton of names, names that you don't often find in the trending baby list names that they put on the internet these days. Not a lot of them appear there, but they are important names nonetheless. This genealogy verifies that Jesus is the Christ and therefore is good news. Some notable names. Matthew's genealogy is different from Luke's, uh, and we don't really know why. We'd love to know, but Matthew's list does show us that Joseph, um, Joseph's legal and adopted son, Jesus, is the heir of the Davidic throne. Okay, also, uh, also Matthew's genealogy omits certain people, and you scratch your head saying, why did he do that? Well, one source said this, biblical genealogies are selective in order to reinforce theological motifs or to aid readers in memorizing the genealogical data. Matthew purposefully omitted names. It's not an oversight on his part because he wanted to organize his material around three sets of 14, which is trying to tell us something. Jump to verse 17, if you would. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, Matthew doesn't explain why that is. He doesn't expand on that. So we don't know why he did it. But applying gematria, just learned about this, a Hebrew numerological system that they attach things to different characters in the Hebrew alphabet, that if you do that, David's name comes to 14. 14. Were Matthew's 14s highlighting the Davidic identity of Jesus Christ? Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe that's a stretch. Could be a huge stretch. Another possible angle on it, 14 was a significant spiritual number for Jews, so maybe Matthew was trying to impress and connect with the Jews primarily. Now, we really don't know. I have no idea why he did that. But the, the three sets of 14, at least, I think this is at least safe ground to say this, that they emphasize that God has always had a good plan and that God is working out his good plan. I think it at least shows us that. To raise up a plan, a good plan, to raise up his chosen Christ to redeem his chosen people. I think we can go that far. So let's go through the names one by one. Okay? I'm kidding. Not going to do that. Who, who bought it? Who was like, you're, he's, he's crazy enough to do it. You're, yeah, you know me, so you're like, no, names. Oh, my goodness. We're going to be here till next week. So let me just highlight a few. Obviously, reference to David and Abraham, extremely important. Huge covenant connection back, okay? But notice the five women mentioned. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, or we could say Bathsheba, and Mary. It is unusual to mention women in ancient genealogies. And Matthew mentions five women. Five women. That's purposeful. He's doing that for a reason. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. You may remember the story. Jacob's son. The, the Lord killed her husband because he was wicked. 
Tamar was widowed with no children. She posed as a prostitute, ending up sleeping with Judah, her father-in-law, and got pregnant out of wedlock. Many scholars think Tamar was a Canaanite, a Gentile. Rahab was not only a Gentile, but a prostitute living in the wicked city of Jericho. She was spared because of her faith in Yahweh, but she had a sordid past. Ruth was a Moabite. That wasn't good. We love the story of Ruth. We love the story of her faithfulness to God and her faithfulness to Naomi. However, we must not forget what God said in his law about Moabites. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Ouch. Moabites sinned against Israel. They didn't help Israel out. That made God mad because they weren't helping his people. Yet God showed grace to Ruth, the Moabite. Bathsheba. She was likely a Hittite like her husband Uriah, another Gentile. Bathsheba at least does this, reminds us of David's absolute moral failure. Mary, though a beautiful woman of God, she was indeed a sinner in desperate need of her son's rescue. And she went through the whole, I'm pregnant, but hey, I've never known a man thing. That's a little awkward. That doesn't happen much, right? What do we make of all this? Matthew includes these women, I think, for at least two reasons. One, most were Gentiles. Throughout Matthew, there is intentional mention of Gentiles, which connects back to what? The Abrahamic covenant, which promised that the, the offspring would come for the nations, the blessings of the nations. And number two, these women were sinners, yet God was gracious to them and through them brought about his promised Messiah. I love what Dr. Daniel Doriani said about this. He said this, Jesus did not come to praise his forebears, but to save them. Looking at Jesus' genealogy, is quite, it is quite clear. He comes from the human line, pimples and all. His own people, his own family needed him to save them from their sins. Do we see that? Right here in these names, this genealogy is loaded with kings, prominent names of Israel. Some good kings, some not so good kings, some awful kings, but all, we can say this, imperfect kings. Is it not clear that no other king was righteous enough to be the Christ? Is it not clear that Jesus, the Christ, does what no other person and no other leader and no other judge and no other king could possibly do before or after him? There, there, there's something else extremely important to see in these verses. Do you notice any pattern in verses 2 through 13? I hope you see a, repetitious, a repetition of a certain phrase. A phrase should be jumping off the page at you. Notice the phrase, the father of. The father of, the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of. Matthew used it 39 times in 15 verses. That's a prominent pattern. But then we get to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, what? Why did, did Matthew say in reference to Joseph, the husband of, and not the father of? Why did he say the husband of Mary and not the father of Jesus? Matthew purposefully broke his pattern. 
Your heart should be going here, folks. Why would he do that? Because though Jesus was born of Mary, Jesus was not born of Joseph. As the Apostles' Creed says, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Matthew breaks his pattern to preserve the virgin birth and incarnation of God's Son. So, Jesus was not in the true line of David then. He cannot be the Messiah. Wrong. He was. He was because Joseph was the offspring of David and because Jesus was Joseph's legal and adopted son, Jesus was in line for that Davidic throne. Make no mistake, Jesus was the legal and rightful heir to the throne of David. Something else is really cool in verse 16. Got to like grammar a little bit here, but when Matthew says, of whom Jesus was born, is he referring to Joseph or Mary? Well, now in English, I think it could go either way. But uh, in Greek, whom is feminine? It's feminine, not masculine, meaning whom refers to Mary, not Joseph. Matthew is being linguistically and grammatically precise in order to preserve the virgin birth and the incarnation as well as the legal right of Jesus to assume the throne of David. Saints, this is not only fascinating, it confirms that Jesus, God's chosen and anointed Christ, is truly good news. He can and does rescue miserable sinners, human beings, from their sin, from their guilt, from their death, and he grants them everlasting life in his eternal kingdom, kingdom of God. No one else can. No one else can do that. No one else has the pedigree. No one else has the power. No one else can do this. One other important thing to note, the deportation to Babylon. Why did the deportation to Babylon happen? Israel rebelled against God, and they suffered for it. Israel broke covenant with God. They failed miserably. Their kings fell into sin and idolatry. The great kingdom of Israel, it crumbled, and Israel was exiled from the promised land by pagans. Yet God did not forget his covenant promises. Temporary theocratic national Israel did obtain the land. They had it. But God's covenant promises were not ultimately about Israel and Middle Eastern land. God promised to raise up a Davidic king to rescue his people from their sin and give them eternal life in his kingdom. And when all human efforts failed, God came through by sending his own son to keep the covenant of works, to fulfill the covenant of grace, and to be the one prophet, priest, and king who perfectly accomplished the will of God to secure redemption for all of God's people throughout history. The the, the deportation to Babylon reminds us that when Solomon and all the kings failed, God did not remove his steadfast love from the house of David, from the dynasty of David. God did not forget the promises that he made David, but from David raised up a greater king to achieve redemption for his people, the King, Jesus Christ. My friends, Jesus Christ is good news. He's good news. So what do we do with this? Well, with Zechariah 9.9 in mind, dear brothers and sisters, dear sons and daughters of Zion, dear sons and daughters of Jerusalem, 
We can rejoice greatly. We can shout aloud because our great king has come. He came in righteousness and he rode humbly into Jerusalem and he was mounted on a donkey with the cross looming and he was crucified in order to give us a place in his righteous and his everlasting kingdom. We have a place. He was crushed for God's wrath to give us a seat at his table. Jesus Christ is good news because he alone achieves redemption. He alone grants redemption. And he alone restores what we have ruined. He restores. He restores. Tony the Tiger and Kellogg's marketing executives think that frosted flakes are great. Okay, you might think so too. They are. But you know, the, Tony the Tiger and the marketing executives are trying to sell you something. Have you figured that out yet? They want you to buy something. Money is behind this. Matthew is telling you that Jesus is great, not to sell you something, not to get your money somehow, but to tell you about eternal life in the kingdom of God that comes at no cost to you. You can't buy it. It's given because Jesus bought it. And he, he's giving it to you, dear brothers and sisters. My dear friends, there is no greater news than the good news of Jesus Christ. Hear it and receive it by faith and be grateful for the good news.